0: Our reading this morning is Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother in law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a Redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the coming, uh, sorry, until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known uh, that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will set her the matter today. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. So a little over a week to go before Christmas. You tired? <laughs> um, uh, there's lots to do, isn't there? Um, there can be a lot of shopping to do, there's lots of preparation to do, food to buy and prepare, parties to go to, staff dues, all the kind of stuff that, uh, that marks this time of year. And all those things are great and wonderful and uh, can be enjoyed uh, in many ways, but uh, they can also be kind of tiring. Um, and uh, I, I love the run up to Christmas and uh, everything about it, but um, I was actually, I can't remember who I was just saying, uh, maybe it was Sue, you know, I'm really looking forward to that kind of period after Christmas when like all your obligations are done, like Boxing Day is, is like Boxing Day to New Year's, that kind of just downtime where you don't have all the obligations and, and you can, you know, you might have some extra time off work, all those sorts of things. It's just this time of kind of rest and uh, time to kind of catch your breath again. Um, And so I'm looking forward to that because rest is essential for our well-being, isn't it? We are not uh, creatures of limitless capacity. Uh, We are finite human beings with finite amount of time and energy. And rest is a part of God's good intention to us. It was built into how we are meant to be, how we're meant to operate. It communicates something about ourselves. It communicates something about God uh, to us. But a full biblical understanding of rest is so much richer than even what we've described so far. Rest, in a biblical sense, is the end of a journey. It's the fulfillment of a promise. It's the celebration of completion. Um, the, uh, the Hebrews, uh, the Israelites, would, would actually have this celebration, the Feast of Booths. And it was this celebration that they would have every year, this festival, this feast, uh, really remembering the time where their time wandering in the wilderness came to an end. And they entered into the promised land, this land that God had given them, a land of rest where they wouldn't be slaves in Egypt anymore. They wouldn't be out wandering in the desert, uh, w- wondering where, where food was going to come, uh, come to. This would be a land of rest, a land of plenty. And they would mark that every year. And this entering into the promised land wasn't of their own achievement Um, They didn't achieve it. God literally rescued them himself out of Egypt, provided for them all along the way in the wilderness. It wasn't a reward for their faithfulness because they were anything but faithful, especially even in the wilderness. Um, It was really uh, God securing a rest for his people that he had set his affection upon. Um, We celebrate this even uh, these weekly patterns of Sabbath. It's not just a relief from labor, it's not uh, only uh, a reward for that, of those things are bound up in that, but it's an opportunity to remember, to enjoy God's finished work of creation, God's finished work of redemption. Jesus himself invites us into a rest. This is uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Um, do we have that one uh, up on the screen? Um, this is Jesus's words. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. And in light of all of that, in light of God giving everything to the son and the son being over all things and revealing those to whom he chooses, he says then this invitation, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. We're gonna see that rest is this theme that runs throughout the scripture. Even in Hebrews 4, we see our final rest is with Jesus in the presence of him forever in in heaven. Um, This rest that he gives us is this covenant blessing of God. It's a gift to his children. And rest is a theme in in Ruth as well. It's a theme in this chapter. We're going to see it begins with an idea of seeking and searching for rest, and it ends with this promise and provision of rest. Um, so we're going to look at these kind of four scenes again, as we have uh, the, the, narr- the, the, the narrative kind of continues. Um, remember, we've got Naomi and Ruth, these widows that have come back from Moab, this foreign land. Uh, Naomi comes back. She's empty. Um, she's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She's brought Ruth, her daughter-in-law, who also is childless, a foreigner, um, who's come back. And um, She's described as being empty and bitter. Um, and yet God in his providence is working, he is providing. And so we're going to look at a plan. This is going to be very Presbyterian this morning. A plan, a proposal, a promise, and a provision. Like, nice, right? So let's start with this plan. Um, we see this plan. Last week, we, uh, the uh, episode two um, ended with... Naomi coming back from gleaning in a field and casually mentioning, um, because Naomi's like, where did you get all of this food? Where did you get all of this grain? And she's like, a guy called Boaz, I was gleaning in his field. And Naomi says, Boaz is one of our redeemers. He's he's a relative. Um, he, He is a redeemer. And so she hatches this plan. She says, stay with him, work in that field, Um, work among his servants. And so, some time has passed. We've moved from kind of a harvest season now into a winnowing season. And um, we see Naomi. And what does she say? She says to Ruth in verse 1, shall I not seek rest for you, for your well-being? We see new life in Naomi now. Um, Before, it was just like, yeah, go out in the field, do whatever. But now, there's hope. She sees this glimmer of hope. There's a, a, a shimmer of light in the darkness, and it's, it's animated her. She's starting to think, and she's not just starting to think of her, her, herself. She's starting to think of Ruth. She's starting to think of her future. We can almost see her heart beginning to soften and melt, and melt a little bit. She's perceiving God's kindness in the direction that things are going, that are moving. It's important for us to, to know God is sovereign, he has a plan that he's working out in his good providence. But God's sovereignty, properly understood, doesn't lead to fatalism, and it doesn't lead to passivity. It provides hope and the confidence to move forward, to take the next step. And so she's right in, in some regard. Now I'm not sure the uh, advice she gives is, is, is advice that we would want to mimic. We'll come back to that in a second. So some time has passed. They've moved from harvest, harvesting to winnowing. Um, winnowing basically would happen on what they called the threshing floor. This is a place where farmers would separate grain uh, from the chaff after the grain had been gathered. Um, and basically they would toss a mixture of kind of straw and grain, chaff into the air with a pitchfork. Um, the heavier kernels of grain would fall to the ground, and the wind would blow the chaff uh, away. So this winnowing or this threshing um, often occurred at night. Uh, Because you'd have nightly breezes that would be needed for this separation in the the cool of the evening. A lot of time it was done maybe on a hilltop, also better for for wind and breeze to come through. Usually on a hard surface like rock or bedrock so the grain wouldn't mix with the dust uh, and the chaff could be blown away. Um, but these threshing floors, these are communal spaces. These are often shared by members of, of a, a town or a, a city or a village. Uh, these are places where they would come together. They were often places of joy, of celebration. Um, as we see here, the workers would sleep in these locations during this time. Um, often that's because they'd be working into kind of the night and the evening when the, when the breeze was blowing. Um, and then once it got dark, they would often stay there um, really to protect their grain so they wouldn't be um, stolen. Um, away, so this is the setting um, that we see this encounter that's going to happen. Um, but it's also important that we remember, in light of this kind of, it is a kind of um, sensually charged kind of um, situation that's happening um, here, and it's important because threshing floors were also a place associated with immoral behavior um, and often prostitution. This is Hosea nine one. Um, these are pretty strong words. uh, Rejoice not, O Israel. Exalt not like the people, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You've been unfaithful to God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on the threshing floors. So threshing floors were often places that even prostitutes would visit, um, and there would be all kinds of things as these workers and farmers would be away from home and uh, spending the night in, in in the threshing place. And yet, Naomi sees this as the right opportunity for Ruth to have this uh, special meeting with Boaz, despite the dangerous nature of the setting. Clearly, she has a high view of Boaz. Um, so she tells her listen, um, put on fresh clothes, bathe, uh, anoint yourself, basically, perfume yourself, look and smell nice. Um, so we're not Gnostics, we don't just believe in this spiritual, physical things matter in Scripture. Um, so she says, listen, take care of yourself. Um, you know, practice good hygiene. Um, you don't have to look like Barbie. Um, but she's not dressed as, as, as she normally would have been around Boaz. Remember, Boaz has, has seen her probably day after day, but she's there working in a field. Now, um, we don't live in an in a agricultural society as much as we did back then, but um, that's not, you know, a place that you're... Probably looking to impress men. You're sweating under the sun. Um, you're, you've got clothes on that are getting dirty. Um, you're, you're working. So that's how Boaz is used to seeing her. But she's coming different this time. Um, have you ever worked with somebody and you only see them in a work environment? I remember when I was in, in high school, I think I was working in a restaurant where we had to wear a uniform. Um, and so I only knew this girl from work. Um, and, you know, hair pulled back, not a lot of makeup, just kind of uniform on, whatever. And then I bumped into her one night, like, out, and I was like, I hardly recognized her. I was like, whoa. I was like, "Um, yeah, that's not the same girl I work with. Like, didn't have the McDonald's uniform on, didn't smell like grease, um, you know, didn't have the goofy visor, uh, any of that. Um, So, she looked different, and I hardly recognized her. And this this is the point. She needs to She's trying to catch his attention in a way that he doesn't just see her as someone that might be just showing up late for work. Um, She's trying to contrast. There's a different reason for her coming to see Boaz. So she's to look nice as a potential bride. Um, I want us to turn our attention to Ezekiel chapter 16. Um, This is uh, God's description of God rescuing his people, Israel. And I want us to pay attention to the language uh, that's happening here because Ruth's a short book. Um, we said last week, he's, he's not mincing these, the author's not mincing these words. He's using words carefully. Um, and some of the descriptions and things that are being said um, uh, that are happening here. So let's take a look. This is Ezekiel 16, 8 to 14. This is God again, describing how he's saving his people. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you, that's important, and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. How did did we become mine? God spread the corner of his garment over us. Then I bathed you with water. I washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. Does any of this sound familiar? I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring in your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. There's an advancement of of position that's happening here. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I bestowed on you, declares the Lord. This is how God is describing him rescuing his people. It's like a marriage. It's someone who is in a field covered in blood, rejected, and he brings this in, washes her, cleans her, um, covers her, uh, her nakedness um, with fine cloth and linen. Um, this is this description. Um, and this is a little bit of what, what we see happening here in Ruth. Ruth is preparing for a potential engagement, a potential wedding. Um, and she goes through similar kind of processes that are here. So we're not Gnostics. We aren't those who just emphasize spiritual things. Physical things <laughs> matter. Um, and we say that with caution because so Many in our day put such a high value on external beauty, way more than biblical faithfulness. But Naomi's instructions to Ruth are important to note um, because we don't want to go to another extreme as well and fail to give attention to um, the physical as well. And so after a hard day's work, uh, some good food and a bit of wine to the glory of God, Boaz is relaxed. He's merry of heart. Um, And again, it's, it's important that we clarify what's happening here. This is Psalm 104. Um, These are words from the scripture. This is uh, uh, the psalmist crediting God for things. He says, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the hearts of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. It's God gives, uh, the psalmist says, the scripture says, wine to gladden the heart of man. Now that's different than being drunk. Um, There's going to be places in the scripture uh, where people are drinking wine to their detriment. Um, But here we see there have been years of famine. And now you can almost imagine Boaz laying on this threshing floor, maybe on a pile of grain, staring up at the stars under the blessing of God in a very happy state. He's merry of heart. And the mention of drinking wine is significant. It shows how Boaz enjoyed wine with self-control. He's clearly not drunk. Um, uh, as the situation unfolds, we see he's thinking clearly. He's, um, he's able to restrain himself in a situation that probably most men wouldn't um, during that time. Both he and Ruth display godliness. This radical um, experience is, is different than what we see described in the Bible. It's interesting because she's a Moabite. The Moabites are descendant from Lot and his incestuous relationship with his daughter um, we see this in Gen- Genesis 19. How did that happen? How did that happen? The, the daughters realize they're, they're on the run. They're living in a cave, essentially. And there's no one that's going to marry them. And they're not going to have children. There's no one going to carry on their family line. And so they hatch a plan. And the first night, they get their father so drunk, um, they lie with him, um, become pregnant, The next night, the next daughter does the same thing. But the scripture says he had drunk so much wine, he didn't even know that they had come in to lay with him or not. Like blindly drunk that he couldn't even remember um, what had happened. This is how the Moabites are actually formed. And this is who Ruth comes from. Here we see a situation that's completely different. Ruth's not a stereotypical Moabite. And Boaz isn't a stereotypical guy, um, especially in the Day of the Judges. And so we have Boaz, and we said, again, we're looking to Boaz, but also through Boaz as this kind of picture of a redeemer, a bigger picture of what's going on. And so we can see, um, a lot of times we can be uh, like the aesthetics who equate holiness with unhappiness, rather than seeing one's delight in God and gratitude to God as the heart condition motivating holiness. Um, one of the Puritans would say, happy are the holy. Um, our happiness in God, our delight in God is what should motivate our holiness. And part of that is recognizing the blessing that he has given to us. We don't have to abandon all pleasure to pursue a life of holiness. We're not called to a monastic lifestyle in that sense. Holiness is about finding your ultimate pleasure in God, the God who gives us everything for our enjoyment, including um, uh, wine in responsible ways and here we have Ruth's remarkable commitment her courage her loyalty uh, to go through with this scheme that Naomi had planned we have to admit it's a risky plan Um, we don't read of this specific method anywhere else in scripture Um, she is encouraging Boaz to act no redeemer had acted yet Um, We're told there's a redeemer closer to Boaz. Maybe that's why he he hasn't acted. He's waiting for the other guy who's kind of first in line. Um, Maybe it's because Ruth's a Moabite. Maybe they're keeping their distance, thinking that Ruth's kind of grieving and not really sure how to to go. Maybe Boaz thought Ruth was out of his league. Um, We see he's older than her, um, significantly at least in some kind of way. And so Ruth's actions here at the threshing floor are going to force Boaz to do something. He's going to have to say and do something. Now, how would the stereotypical kind of guy respond to this? Because it is, it's a dangerous kind of ploy, isn't it? Um, to kind of sneak in secretly in the night, no one knowing um, that you're there. Maybe if, he, if he's groggy, he could wake up harshly. Um, I know if I'm woken out of a a deep sleep, I'm not in this disposition that I am now. (laughs) Um, uh, He could maybe charge Ruth with acting like a prostitute, shame her publicly. Um, Maybe other men that weren't of of Boaz's character might interpret Ruth's actions as a license to, to sin and to take advantage of her sexually. But here we have Boaz enjoying God's gifts rightly. He's labored, he's eat, he's drink, he's rest, He's enjoying what God has given him to the gifts of the creation. Um, And he doesn't take advantage of Ruth. And so let's see this proposal then. A proposal. Um, We have um, Ruth coming to him. She's uh, got his attention, obviously. She looks different than what is normally there. She's come in. Um, she's uncovered his feet and lied at, at, at his feet. Um, so she's not lying next to him, she's lying at his feet. Now you're like, well, there's, we just, here's a couple caveats that we need to understand. One, there's just going to be some things in, in scripture that culturally we just don't understand. We live in a very different time and a very different context than a lot of what we read, especially in the Old Testament uh, during that time. Also, um, most of, when we get into narratives, especially in the Old Testament, um, and even in the New Testament, um, these things are descriptive. They're not necessarily prescriptive. So they're describing what happens. That isn't necessarily an endorsement and a prescription for how you and I should do things. Um, And so some of these things are... um, some rabbis have suggested that the uncovering of, of the feet would, to, would be to remind him of his responsibility as a redeemer. We're going to see this in chapter four where there's a sandal exchanged and things like that. So there's some customs that are going on there. Um, probably it's just to wake him up in, in a way that he would wake up on his own. Uncover his feet. Um, your, your feet get cold. It's breezy there. He's going to wake up, look down at his feet, and there, and there she is. And so this is where we are. There's this kind of proposal that is taking place. And he asks her, who are you? Who are you? He doesn't initially recognize her. Again, this is dark. This isn't in a a city. There's no city lights. Um, They're out in a a threshing place, probably up on a hill away from town. And it's dark, Um, dark enough. If you've ever been out in the the wilderness in the dark and turned off lights, like it's hard to see um, that far ahead of us. We struggle to even know what that's like because we have so much light pollution where we live. So he doesn't recognize her. He asks her who she is. And it's interesting, her response. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Now, her response is different from chapter 2 because there she wouldn't even be counted as one of Ruth's servants. Her status is improved. She's been working among his servants, right? That was his instructions. You stay with us. You work alongside of my servants. She has an improved status now. This is now the kind of woman that Boaz might actually marry. Now, she doesn't follow Naomi's plan exactly. She doesn't wait for his instructions completely. Ruth takes initiative here. She says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She's not interested in a one-night stand. She's interested in a marriage. And this idiom of spreading your wings is an idiom for marriage. In Ezekiel 16.8, that? That, uh, that's one we've already looked at. Can we pull that one back up again? Um, this, this uh, when I spread the corner of my garment over you, this is the same language that's used as spreading wings over um, someone. It's how, it's how a, um, a, a custom of, of marriage would, would actually be a, a placing of a garment of, of a uh, uh, a husband's garment over spreading over um, was a sign of taking someone in marriage it's also the same language that's used in chapter 2 in verse 12 Ruth had sought refuge under the wings of Yahweh and now Ruth is asking Boaz to become part of God's protection and provision for her life and again reminding that you're a redeemer now there's some caution expressed here Boaz is a redeemer He's not the only redeemer. He's not the closest. He's not the next in line, essentially. Boaz was not the brother of Elimelech, uh, Naomi's husband. And so um, there was provision in Deuteronomy um, 25. You can read about that. We're not going to take the time to do that now. But basically, if a woman uh, was childless and, and widowed... Uh, the kinsman redeemer was obligated to marry his brother's widow in order to raise up a family for the dead brother so that the family could inherit that property. The property would stay within the family. Um, His deceased brother's family name would be carried on. But this isn't the the position that Boaz is in exactly. Um, He did have some family responsibility if he chose to act kind of in the spirit of the law, but he wasn't the brother of Elimelech. He didn't have to act. There was definitely loopholes if he wanted to um, to not not act. Otherwise, this whole drama would be unnecessary. Um, They could just appeal to the law. You're the next in line. It's your duty. Um, You're the redeemer. Boaz's redeemer status um, is is further away. He has options, if if it were. And so here we have this kind of bold move conjured up by Naomi and acted by Ruth to put him in a position to have to act? What will it be? And so we have um, this proposal that takes place. Next time, we're gonna move into this next part of Boaz's promise to her. It's interesting um, the reaction that he has, isn't it? Um, What's his reaction in, in, in verse 10? He actually blesses her, blesses her. This, is, this isn't, whilst the, the situation is kind of charged, uh, it's the cover of night. Uh, she's obviously looking and smelling attractive on purpose. Um, she goes to him while she's sleep, while he's asleep in the cover of darkness. Um, and so we're interpreting a lot of this in sensual kind of ways. And there definitely is, you know, um, a sensual kind of atmosphere that's there. And yet his response reveals his character again. He blesses her. He's thinking about uh, the Lord in, in the middle of this. This is worship language. This isn't, um, you know, kind of steamy, passionate kind of language. His kindness, uh, he refers to her kindness. The kindness that he's referring to, her first kindness, that this kindness actually surpasses her first kindness. Her first kindness is what he's referring to is to Naomi, her kindness to leave her, her, her homeland. Uh, be faithful to Naomi and be willing to bear a child for Naomi, be willing to bear a child for Elimelech, to carry on the family line. He's like this, the Lord bless you because your kindness, this kindness has even surpassed that. This has said, referring to her kindness to Ruth and now even to him. He expresses delight that Ruth hasn't gone after younger men. Um, so there is an attraction that's there. Um, this isn't him just doing his duty. He's like, you can almost kind of get the sense of like, wow, I kind of thought maybe I was a bit too old. Maybe, you know, you're out of my league. But I'm really pleased you didn't go after like these younger men. Um, and, and so there's, there's attraction that's here. There's obviously desire that's here. Um, and he comforts her right away. Verse 11 do not fear words that were told over and over again even the shepherds trembling as the angels come do not fear why because they're bringing good news a redeemer is on his way imagine ruth in that moment you've been nervous you don't know how he'll react It's a dangerous place uh, to be in. What if somebody else um, were to uh, assail her during during the night? I'm sure her heart was beating fast, and her words, his words uh, to comfort, are to bless and to reassure, and to make a promise to her. He promises to do everything that Ruth had requested, which probably includes taking care of the family, the property. This isn't just taking on Ruth in marriage. Um, but also providing for Naomi. And notice in verse 11, he recognizes her worthiness. He says, even the fellow townsmen, um, Ruth has got a reputation now in the town as a worthy woman. This is a phrase that occurs in Proverbs 31. Um, uh, Again, another connection to Proverbs 31 is her works praise her in the gates. This is what he says, like, your reputation is known in the gates, She's respected, she's praised by other people. Ultimately, her beauty is her character. It's her godliness. No doubt she was attractive, uh, at least to, to Boaz, and at least he thought attractive enough that she could go after younger men. That's all. We just kind of get these hints. We're not told anything about her, her physical um, beauty uh, overtly, because that's not really the point that the author's trying to drive home. And then we get this problem again. Every good story has some tension. Will will this promise be delivered? Will this promise come true? But there's a problem that there's this unnamed relative uh, that's closer to Boaz. He has first refusal, essentially. And so Boaz is going to honor these customs. He's going to honor the social um, customs that are there. But he promises that if the other man, the other redeemer is unwilling to do it, then he pledges under God to take her. Either way, Ruth will have a redeemer. This is the promise that's made. And then he urges her to remain there with him during the night, um, more than likely for the purposes of safety um, that she'll be cared for Uh, there. He's not going to take advantage of her. And for her to be out on her own in the middle of the night um, would be um, pretty risky. And so we see this promise. There's a promise that is made to her, that you will be redeemed. I hope you hear the echoes. We've said that this story of redemption is a smaller, it's a microcosm story that, that tells the bigger story of redemption as well. And then this scene ends with Boaz's provision. Before it's light enough for people to recognize Ruth, um, Boaz sends her off. So the, night is, has, uh, the bulk of the night has come through. Daybreak is, is soon upon them, but he sends her away before people can recognize her. Again, he's providing for her. He's preserving her dignity, her reputation. Um, no doubt that if people saw uh, Ruth there, they would maybe jump to conclusions um, of, of her um, having a sexual relationship to, with there. And he wants to preserve her dignity, her reputation, um, and because he had. Um, there wasn't any... Sexual uh, relationships that has happened there. Her sexual purity was still intact. And uh, he's trying to preserve this here. It's important for us to take note of that, isn't it? I think we live in a society where um, our, uh, what people think about sexual purity is so low. Even the idea of like sexual purity, like is laughable, right? Right. we put sexual pleasure way above any kind of importance of sexual purity. And sometimes we've just imbibed that kind of culture as well. Um, and so we're not as concerned about our reputation in that. Um, so let me just say something that I'm sure will be super unpopular. But I, I struggle to understand, uh, understand how um, Christian people who are dating go off on holiday together just on their own to these romantic destinations. And think that your reputation is still going to be intact. Um, Without we communicate things as we do these things. Here, Boaz is concerned about her reputation uh, and about preserving her dignity. And so she goes out, but he doesn't send her home empty-handed. He sends Ruth off with a gift, with provision. And it's such a large amount that Boaz has to put it on her in verse, 17, in verse 15. So hold out your garment. This is either her cloak, um, maybe, um, or some, some um, theologians even think of the, the scarf the women would wear. Um, this is often the scarf that they would also, once they had children but were still out working, would wrap. You, you know, you would see women working in the field and they wrap their child up in their, in their kind of scarf around them um, to hold the baby there. Um, and maybe filling that full of grain is even a picture of um, an emptiness that will be filled, Um, this foreshadowing of a child that is there. Who knows? Um, That might be stretching it a bit far. But what we do know is he wants to send her back with provision. He wants to send her back with a gift and one that would send a message. So it's six measures. We're not sure what the measure is. Depending on the measure, it could be anywhere between 60 to 90 pounds of grain. Um, So this is... That's why he puts it on her. She's lugging um, this back to her. And he goes back with such an extravagant gift. And it's a couple reasons. One, he wants to actually provide for them. You have two desperate widows that are here. He wants to provide. But more than likely, this is a symbolic provision as well. It's a message not just to Ruth but to Naomi. Boaz, by taking Ruth as his wife, will also be committed to caring for Naomi. And we're going to see that made clear um, as we move into the next chapter as well. She comes home, and Naomi, as you would imagine, um, probably didn't sleep very well that, that night. Uh, maybe she was worried. Um, uh, you know, did something happen to Ruth before she got there? How did, how did he react? And so she asked the question, like, how did you, how did you get on? How did you—what um, was his reaction? And I'm sure the 60 to 90 pounds of grain was a good sign, um, or maybe that was like, hey, sorry, but uh, here's a little food to go, like the doggy bag. So, but Ruth tells Naomi everything that Boaz has done, and then she mentions the grain again. Boaz's gift was intended to bless Naomi. This is the same Naomi that's previously described herself as empty, and now she's just overflowing with provision, more than she needed. She's childless and hungry at the beginning of this, and now she has come back with a load of grain before her and this promise of a redeemer um, of, of a child that will carry on the lineage and the promise of God to them. We're witnessing Naomi's journey from emptiness to fullness, from bitterness to hope, um, from, from really probably depression um, to joy. Her days of emptiness Her days of hopelessness are soon to be over. And Naomi recognizes Boaz's commitment. Um, He's going to go and meet with this person. And it says that he won't rest until he settles the issue. And so here we return again to our theme of rest. She starts off with, Should I not seek rest for you for your well-being? And now... After this plan is enacted, this promise has been given to to them. It's not them that need to to do anything else. He won't rest. The Redeemer will do the work. The Redeemer won't rest until it is completed. All they have to do now is wait. There's nothing more that they can do. Um, They've approached, they've come to um, the Redeemer. And it's now he who has to finish the work. This is so important for us, isn't it? We, we see these echoes of redemption that are already starting to come through. And there's much for us to learn. There's much for us to look to. There's many echoes even of the Garden of Eden and Ruth's romance of redemption. Um, in Genesis, we have God giving Eve to Adam Um, And as a result, these two individuals are united in intimacy. They have children together. God blesses them tells them to be fruitful, to multiply. And in Ruth, Boaz takes Ruth. They're going to share, obviously, in this holy union, bear a son, as we'll see. And then we fast forward to the New Testament, Ephesians 5, where we get this picture of Paul talking about marriage, how a husband should love his wife sacrificially, how he should be willing to lay down his life for her how he should be willing to wash her with the word as it is. But then he says, although I'm talking about marriage, I'm not really talking about marriage only. I'm really talking about the mystery that is Christ to his people, us, the bride of Christ, the church, that he loves his church, that he gave himself up for us, that he provided all that we would ever need if we would just rest in his work that would be finished. Jesus also would not rest until he says it is finished. is John 19. Christ sees us in our need. He sees us helpless at his feet. And he pays the price to redeem us. A price that is costly, as we'll see next, uh, next week, as we resolve this story. He spread his robes of righteousness over us and makes us his own. He does all and more than we ask him to do for us. And so how are we finding our rest is the question. What is, it, what is the kind of rest that we're looking for? Oh, there's the temporary rest that a night's sleep might uh, take care of, that a good vacation might restore. But there's an ultimate rest that goes far beyond that. Uh, a weariness, a tiredness that a vacation isn't going to solve, that a sabbatical just won't resolve. It's a longing, it's a tiredness of soul, as we seek to find what we're really looking for. And it's more than an empty belly that would ever be filled. It's who we actually are, who we were created to be. What is our meaning, what is our purpose, why are we here? The questions that human beings have been asking since we've been put on this planet. Questions that we still are not satisfied, um, that we get hints of in science, that philosophy starts to scratch issues, Uh, And points us in different directions. But one that never fully gets resolved. Until we find it resolved in our Redeemer. It's in Him. As we wait on His work to be finished. And completed in us. It's in Him as He spreads His wings over us. As He washes the blood off of us. As He clothes us in righteousness. This picture of Jesus redeeming us. when we had no resources of our own, when we were hopeless, maybe even finding ourselves bitter. And this is the hope of Advent, isn't it? This is how we find our joy. We see this path of Naomi and, 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 and even Ruth of empty, of unsure, of returning back to the place that God had made promises to find a harvest. And to find God and his providence working through the circumstances in their life, unseen, unknown to them, just so happened to be, coincidentally, weaving his plan together to redeem them. That his promises would not go unfulfilled. um, That he would provide all that they need. And so, this is a challenge for us this season. Um, And a season that we might find ourselves tired and a bit weary, but also full of joy and full of hope. This is Advent, isn't it? It's dark. It's the time of the judges. It's when everybody's just doing kind of right in their own eyes. But we know that the hope is coming. We know that a Redeemer is coming. We know that promises have been made. And so we wait in expectation. And just as this night eventually gives way to day where a Redeemer will do his work, the light gets brighter and brighter as Advent draws to an end, and gives way to the birth of Jesus. This is the story of our life. We find ourselves now in a second advent, a second waiting, a second waiting for the second coming of Christ again, where he again will fulfill all of his promises, only waiting to give us more time to respond, only giving us more time to say yes, only only that we would do the same and ask him to spread his wings over us. And so if you're a believer today, that is the story of our salvation for sure. But it's also the, the ongoing story of our sanctification, isn't it? Of how we become more like Jesus. We, we go on in the same way that we came to Christ, by going back to the gospel again, by being renewed in our hope and our expectation of what he would do for us in fulfilling all the promises that he has made to us. If you're not a, a, a Christian today, um, what, a, what a brilliant season <laughs> to give your life to Jesus, to receive that greatest present that, he, that God has given us in his son, to find all that you've been searching for, all of the things that you're seeking satisfaction in, maybe even unknowingly. Maybe today is the day that we give pause to actually examine those things and actually put our faith and our hope And seeing this unfolding story all through the Old Testament, all pointing to Jesus coming to fulfill all the promises that he's made to us in God. May today we accept God's fullest expression to, to us, the fullest expression of generosity, of his provision to humanity in his son Jesus. May we receive him once again this morning. Let's pray. Whether this is a a dramatic story, it's one full of tension, Um, it's one really as a story unfolds and us hearing it for the first time, we have the the benefit of kind of knowing how the story ends. But as we work our way through um, these people living real lives with real issues, real grief, real loss, real uncertainty, real bitterness, real depression, real need. Um, Father, this is our story. And we might not find ourselves in the same kind of material need. Um, We might feel like, well, I'm not bitter or depressed. Actually, my life is going well. And yet, if we would pause, that still small voice, what am I searching for? Is this all there is to life? Is it just to eat, drink, and be merry and die? Or will we put here for more? Will we put here to actually know our creator and find that he is redeeming us, that he is purchasing us back out of the darkness into a life full of abundance, full of promises that are being filled, full of hope. Hope because of a son that would be born. A son that would be born that we guarantee our place among God's people. Father, we are like Ruth. We are foreigners, we are sojourners coming um, from outside the people of God to be counted among your people. All of that made possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so, Father, I pray for us this morning um, that whatever our circumstances are, that we would... um, that we would see that light shining in the darkness, that we would know your hope, that we would know your peace. And this hope and this peace gives way to joy um, as we know that promises are being fulfilled, that we know that uh, our, our emptiness, our bitterness is moving into our past and its abundance and fullness and provision and joy um, that is set before us. And so, Father, as we anticipate how this story resolves, um, Father, we anticipate how our story resolves as well. And we look forward to that day uh, where all of your promises are are said yes in Christ, coming once again, a new Advent, a final Advent once and for all. Father, we long for that day. uh, We hope for that day. And we pray that that day would inform every day between now and that day. Um, and Father, if there are those that have still yet to say yes to you, um, Father, that they would say yes to your proposal this morning and know your joy, know your peace, and know your hope once and for all. We ask this in your name.